The next station is Shoreditch High Street. Grace Dent reporting for duty. This is Walks of Art in Shoreditch. In this episode, how a shop, a house and a fate caused an earthquake in British art and a property revolution throughout East London. Thanks in part to a generation of young British artists who'll be dubbed forevermore in history and in folklore as the YBAs. You know that thing, like the YBAs, what they say about the YBAs? Oh, we all got on our bike and made our own way. We had no other choice. It's 1993. They were making their own market, really. They were making their own rules because there was nothing out there after art school. It's unbelievable you think that it was such a big, empty sort of wasteland so close to the city of London. Modern Shoreditch is a cultural playground for the young and the cool and the relevant. Millennials and curious tourists here for the bars, the pop-up restaurants and the private clubs. In the early 90s, much of this landscape was empty. Almost all of it was yet to exist. It used to be all just old industrial buildings. There was a few pubs, but barely any clientele. Most of the people who lived in the Shoreditch area were itinerant artists, ex-art students, who were trying to get by and do something creative. You couldn't afford to have a studio and somewhere to live, but it worked out quite well. You could have an entire warehouse floor. OK. We lived in a place that was freezing cold in the winter. We shivered. I mean, the first night I ever spent in Shoreditch, I rolled myself up in a carpet that happened to be <laughs> at the end of the studio because it was marginally warmer than lying on the floor. By the time I arrived, this was, you know, the epicentre of cool. part you actually remember is it wasn't glamorous at all around here. It was... No, no, there was no such thing as glamour. <laughs> there was poverty. When Brian Gertler arrived in the Shoreditch Triangle in 1986 to set up his small print business, he had no way of knowing that one day he'd end up living on the site of some authentic 90s art history. Redchurch Street was the most expensive postcode in the whole of London to insure a car because there were so many cars getting set fire to and trashed and stolen from that address. I now live on Redchurch Street. We've got Versace up one end. We've got a Conran Hotel up there. It's one of the most sought-after postcodes in the whole of London. For six months in 1993, Brian's home was occupied by a couple of irascible young women. Before they got hugely famous. Two artists by the name of Sarah Lucas and Tracy Emin. I was broke and we were nobodies. That is Tracy Emin. This was it. I think it was this one here. And that is Matt Bickley. So this was uh, the infamous... Sarah Lucas and Tracy Emin shop. Friends used to call Matt the mayor of Shoreditch, a post he's never held in any official capacity, but it certainly summed up his role as a linchpin to Shoreditch's parties, exhibitions, or just hanging out down at the pub. Hiya. Uh, it's a cousin store, actually. We're here only for five days. We're having a party tonight. A young man promoting the venue's current temporary inhabitants gives us a flyer. This used to be uh, something else many, many moons ago. This was, if you like, the original Shoreditch pop-up experience. Sarah and Tracy made and sold art here. They held free drawing classes in the basement. They also drank quite a lot. All right. You should add this on your CV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Tracy Emin met Sarah Lucas at Sarah's first solo show in an old Bermondsey betting shop called City Racing. I didn't have any friends in London. Tracy had almost given up on being an artist. And very much alone. And she's there. And as I turned around like this, there's this woman drinking like a can of Tenants Extra. Half her face was taken up by a smile of like absolute jubilation and happiness. And I went, God, that's Sarah Lucas. And Sarah just went, I like you, you're great. And we just become friends. Sarah was part of an art crowd hailing from Goldsmiths College that had grabbed a lot of art scene attention in 1988 for their famously self-promoted group show in a Docklands warehouse. Her art played with imagery cut from the Sunday sport of nude glamour models and melded it with British working-class foods like fried eggs and kebabs to make this harsh statement about the objectification of women. Sarah was on this amazing high. The advertising mogul, Charles Saatchi, bought her work. Which was unexpected because Saatchi had been buying work out of, like, polished steel, chrome, perspex. And Sarah was making work out of bits of glue and jam and hamburgers and bits of crap. She said, please help me find a studio. We were on the East End. And she said, oh, look, there's a shop there. And I said, it'd be great to get a shop. And she said, a shop? Yeah, a real shop. A shop shop. And we did this amazing project. They occupied the whole building, an old doctor's surgery, and painted it up. Me and Sarah were opposed to you know, that bright white colour everywhere. Art in the 90s, white. Magnolia was good. With the stereo blaring David Bowie's golden years, Sarah and Tracy sold ashtrays with pictures of Damien Hurst's face on them, comfort blankets in the colour of a Mark Rothko painting, and created a shrine to David Hockney. The women bought cheap items from Bricklane Market and customised them into small, covetable pieces. There were badges made from ribbon printed with the words Rescue Me or mugs with the girls' faces on. Statement T-shirts read slogans like She's Kebab or Complete Arsehole. It says, shop, open, have you wanked over me yet? I'm so fucky. At the same time as, um, yeah, bring me the head of Tracy Emin on a pillow. Put that in the window... And then people could come in and go, yeah, I'm Tracy Emin. What are you going to do about it? Right, here we go. This is my little grotto. Brian the printer, who lived across the street, spied an opportunity. We got this building on Swanfield Street. Right at the top also had a staircase up to the flat roof. What passed for a Shoreditch roof terrace in those days. You could smoke a joint, drink a beer and just look out over London. It was fantastic. Virtually opposite was Tracy Emin and Sarah Lucas. I remember going in there one day and I saw Tracy and, you know, she was a nobody in those days. She was just another itinerant ex-art student who liked to drink, like me. As we were doing T-shirts for the British Museum, which is kind of reproduction fine art, let's say Monet and Vincent van Gogh and whatever, whatever, and they had these most peculiar T-shirts in with really bizarre kind of random statements written on them in black felt pen. I said, would you like some really good T-shirts? We, we're just opposite and we print T-shirts. She looked at me like, you just don't get it, do you? <laughs> You're right, I don't get it, I really don't. This is it, this is my art. It's 11 o'clock, let's put the shutters up. On weekends, opening hours went from 11 o'clock on Saturday night after the pub shut to 4pm the next day. This place was a stop-off point, a drinking den for some of what would be art world future royalty. Sam Taylor Wood, or Johnson as she's now known, was a regular face here. Sam's video art and photography 
featuring at one point a sleeping David Beckham, would go on to win her global attention. Whatever it was that Tracy and Sarah were doing here, and it certainly wasn't traditional watercolours, there was a lot of thinking and talking and laughing and socialising. In between not being the greatest artist in the world, me and Sarah were actually making things every single day, trying to make things. It was like a stepping stone for lots of ideas. Not just that, it was a collaboration. We had fantastic conversations with really good people and we still believe in art. We'd have a place and we'd discuss and we'd argue about art. And that's what it was about. And that's what was really, really important. Now, Tracy Emin is a British cultural icon. She's bold, defiant and famous in a way that fascinates tabloid newspapers as well as art critics. Her art, strewn with morning after pill packets and vodka bottles, are the names of everyone she's ever slept with, or reference to miscarriage, humiliation, loss. It's confessional. Art that speaks to people who don't even normally like art. After the shop closed, Tracy says she destroyed any work that was left over. One work survives, commemorating the shop's last night. It was bought by an up-and-coming gallery owner by the name of Joshua Compston. Shortly after, Brian took over the building's lease. <laughs> there was no toilet. There was an outback toilet with a little wooden shed door. Uh, there was radiators, but the boiler didn't work. So it was primitive, to say the, the very least. Now, when we did move in, I went down to the basement. They had a, a really kind of smelly basement. It's 1790, this building. And the smell of damp down there was something else. But there was all this kind of MDF with collages from the sun on, sun newspapers and lots, lots of tits, and loads of empty bottles and cans and all the rest of it. I hired a skip. <laughs> Threw it all in the bin. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she got it in one. <laughs> and I put all this stuff in a skip. <laughs> Another young British artist who emerged in the 90s lived for a while in an old synagogue not far from the shop. The site of her work, made in 1993, is 20 minutes away by bike. Or, if you're like me and love a London bus, you can take the number eight. So I think it's that tree and those two benches are more or less where it stood. Probably where those benches are would have been where the, yeah, the front room was. It's also gone. Somewhere around here. Yeah, I'm sure there are bits of brick still left. Rachel Whiteread's house. The grass hasn't completely grown up over some of the edges. Amazing. Anne Gallagher, who's responsible for buying British art for Tate Galleries, went to the unveiling. And it was pretty mind-blowing. Artist Rachel Whiteread. When House came up, it was like a sort of dream come true that it would have its own sort of grass plinth, essentially, and that there was this single house... Her aim was to make a cast of the inside of a Victorian terrace house by spraying concrete into the building's empty shell before its external walls were removed. A house like so many of the British working classes grew up in. It was very sort of confrontational, the piece. It was up for actually a very sort of short period of time and there was such a commotion about it and then everybody felt that they had to have their say. I felt like I hadn't really even seen the work. And then it was ripped down, and then it was gone. The home, which became house, once belonged to the Gale family. 
it was up for demolition as this street, which had been heavily bombed during the Second World War, was part of a grand scheme to join up parks and green spaces, viewed by the government as crucial to economic and social regeneration in this area. House attracted thousands of visitors and wisecracks from the locals, the media and other artists. So there was graffiti saying, what for? And then someone else had written, why not? And so there were people responding to it as a work of art and like, why was it here? And others arguing for its existence. And then there were others who instantly felt it was an emblem of housing problems. And crucially, this wasn't work trapped somewhere in a gallery. It was literally there in the road. The general public passing by, most of whom had no previous dealings before with the contemporary art world, suddenly found themselves part of this Grove Road installation. I wanted to sort of use and wanted to preserve the everyday and wanted to give authority to some of the more forgotten things, you know stopping it in time and, and casting it in something solid. All of these notions of change, of family life, of the wisdom of city planners, of the sanctity, the vulnerability of one's home, are vivid in Rachel's work. Or at least they are to me. Her work, bizarrely, has often caused sensation, but it's never intended in that way, it is mostly rather quiet, contemplative work. There's something quite uncanny about it, and there is a huge awareness imprinted in the sculptures, but it's very subtly recorded. A room, a house, a hot water bottle, even a library to remember victims of the Holocaust, all have received Rachel Whiteread's subtle treatment. Familiar architecture and furniture and things that we use in daily life are made mysterious. A house honoured, or at least cast an eye over, the way we everyday Britons existed. I think it is one of the most remarkable pieces of public art that there's been for a very long time. It's resonated for many decades. The ambition, the physical exertion and the sheer bloody-mindedness required to make this are extraordinary. It's quite rare that a work of art has that degree of impact on such a wide range of people. It was so known about that art collectors would come to London and they would just flag down a taxi and say, can you take me to the house? After little more than two months, not long after Rachel won the Turner Prize for House, the council tore it down. The fact that it didn't last, you know, it was always meant to be temporary, but I think it could have lasted a bit longer. Hello! <laughs> Friday Mosque is just kicking out, isn't it? Amazing, Yeah, literally. Thank God, they still got it. Yeah. yeah. Modern Brick Lane is a magnet to tourists. And if you loathe crowds, almost a no-go area on weekends is the thoroughfare is packed with shoppers and moochers and the young and beautiful taking Instagram snaps of street food and graffiti. That mosque actually used to have parties in in the early 90s. Personally, I think it might have even been like a kind of an old synagogue. In the early 90s, Matt Bickley was not long out of art college. You arrived here... About 91, 91? 92. You wanted to go down here, didn't you? 
Even though it might sound like a cliché, the streets around it have always made room for refugees and itinerants of one sort or another. Artists were no different. When I first came here, this was a, a no-man's land, really. Most of these shops were boarded up. Yes, the 24-hour bagel shop was here. And the Sunday market, which back then was a rather sorry affair, specialising in cheap dinner plates, stolen bicycles and other miscellaneous junk. And back then, this relatively deserted landscape allowed a renegade bunch of artists and thinkers and hedonists and party people to play and, importantly, also to grow. I think we all kind of gravitated to this place because you could live the kind of utopian New York artist lifestyle. Ironically, it turned out to be very central London. As acid jazz and gangster rap floated from open windows, you could almost smell the possibility. Units and workshops, deserted by the garment trade, were filling with self-possessed 20-somethings, well-versed in media and the creative arts. They hadn't even had to fork out for their own education. I think we just thought it was all possible for us. Yeah. You've got to remember, even though we were all practising artists, we were all doing lots of other things. So we were all kind of like involved in clubland and putting on parties and T-shirt clothing labels. So many different kind of enterprises that we all felt like rock stars in our own right. Which is kind of what some of these young British artists became. Hi. How are you doing? Sorry, that's going to happen a lot. Of course, YBA as a term is obviously nonsense. Useful nonsense as it captures a moment, but it's nonsense nevertheless. Not only did the YBAs get old, age withered them like any other mere mortals, but plainly, the art of Tracy Emin is very different to the work of Rachel Whiteread, or Sarah Lucas, or Gary Hume, or the Chapman brothers, or Chris Ophelia, all of whom lived round here at some point. That's Chris's house. Chris Afili, who by the end of the decade had both a Turner Art Prize and a housecom studio in Fashion Street, designed by his mate, the architect, David Adjay. He had an intercom system to let people in, which was just like, oh, my God, that's next level. And he had a TV that could follow you around the room. I remember that, the thing that really kind of wowed me. Chris's life would change forever around the time of the now heavily rhapsodised exhibition, Sensation, in 1997. It was the exhibition that showed many of the works which individual artists would forever be identified. Damien Hirst's Shark, Tracy's Bed, Mark Quinn's Frozen Blood Head. In America, Chris Ophelia's portrait of the Virgin Mary was singled out for its sick use of subject matter and materials. Chris was known to everyone in Shoreditch. He drove a lime green Capri. He sold chunks of elephant dung on the market and in his paintings he gleefully daubed together cartoon-like figures with glitter and bits of resin-coated elephant poo. He'd stick on pictures from porn mags or of famous people like rapper Tupac or boxer Cassius Clay. The YBAs weren't the first controversial artists in this area. Gilbert and George had been living and working on Fournier Street for decades. What probably attracted them to the places something that similar that attracted me was the sense of self-creation you could really genuinely reinvent yourself here we're standing here now talking and nobody cares like nobody's paying that much attention that's why the outlandish fashion crowd and the pretentious art crowd 
and the real music heads felt comfortable here. Did you feel like you were part of a scene? Absolutely, from the get-go. We have to go to Sandra's. Sandra Escalant was the landlady at the Golden Heart Pub. Such an important part of us starting to think we're a part of an art scene because we started to have our own venues. People like Liam Gillett and Tracy Evan, they had their artwork on the walls so that they could get free drink. You know, it was that kind of fantasy that you hear about artists. Picasso donates a painting to a restaurant, can eat there for free. It had that kind of sense of living history. By rights, this pub should have been on its last legs. The wholesale fruit and veg market had moved and Truman's, the brewers, shut down. Aside from a few hardened East Enders, there weren't many drinkers left. What do you want? Pint, but a lager top. A signature Tracy M in neon sign hangs in the window. There are photos behind the bar. This Tracy and Jay Jacqueline. None get higher billing than Princess Diana. You could say no wrong about Diana <laughs> in front of Sandra. That would be, that'd be you barred for life <laughs> in this pub. It was just about possible for the artists back then to eke a social life out of the free booze served at stuffy art parties in West End galleries. But these were dull affairs, occasionally transformed by the oikish swagger of these bright, scruffy young things. All of these outings often began or ended at Sandra's. A stalwart company of artists and friends locked in the back bar, kept company by assorted characters who'd wander in off the street. Back then, with licensing laws being far more draconian, after-hours nightlife happened only in a few places and only if you knew where to look. Places like the LA or London Apprentice, an African-Caribbean club called Night Moves, and the infamous Charlie Wright's or Charlie Wright's International Bar were places you could try your arm if you dared. <laughs> Charlie Wright's International Bar sounds like somewhere you'd put on a nice cocktail frock and have pleasant time meeting diplomats. It really wasn't. After a swift half, for me, we head to Slater Street. That's where Chris used to sell his, um, these kind of balls of elephant shit, sort of covering glue and pins in and, and like glittering. And just had them on a blanket. And uh, it wasn't actually some big art statement, it was just us being sort of irreverent and stupid, you know? I mean, the folklore and the art history books will tell you that it's, like, a serious kind of statement about sort of black identity and... You're having a bit of a joke. It's both, you know. Obviously, it's all part and parcel of creating a, a vocabulary for your work. He knew it was going to be slightly shocking yeah. to put a blanket out and, like, pretend that he's selling yeah. elephant shit yeah. from Africa. It was funny. Got it from London Zoo. And I think it's only years later that you realise that these things aren't simply gags, they're actually part of your process. We were also people in our early 20s. We were sleeping on friends' floors after a night out. And that's what I loved about those friendships. We weren't kind of thinking about the sleeve notes to come. Anyone know about the fate worse than death? Faints that we had. On a July afternoon on the corner of Charlotte Road and Rivington Street, the banner read, I should cocoa. 
It's a sort of slang term, isn't it, from the 1930s? Pull the other one, you know. A load of artists started arriving for a very special fate. This is an area on a Saturday afternoon in 1993. It would have been completely empty, like a ghost town. It's the bit of Shoreditch where it all started, really. It looked like Hogarth's land. This is where printer Brian spent his first nights, in an empty warehouse sleeping on cardboard boxes, dipping into the bricklayer's arms for free roast potatoes and shell on prawns every Sunday. They had a nice open fire, so it's where we went to get warm. Painter Gary Hume squatted a place where the council used to store bin lorries just off Hoxton Square, near fashion designer Alexander McQueen. A young art impresario called Joshua Compton moved in. He was posh, <laughs> in a way that made me realise I wasn't, you know, like that I was definitely from South East London. But he was passionate and he was crazy, and we were all definitely passionate and crazy. A maverick, an art entrepreneur, he loved a movement with a manifesto. Uh, well, I met Joshua Compton when he was at Canberra School of Art. He, um... You couldn't miss him on the first day of art school because he was the only person who turned up wearing his grandmother's fur coat and was sitting on the steps chain-smoking whilst reading James Joyce. It was definitely a pose. He moved in here in 1992. Darren Caulfield was a friend of Joshua's and one of the first artists shown at his gallery on Charlotte Road. You could see the two FN logos for Factual Nonsense and Joshua had the idea of taking um, the fascist symbol, which was used a lot in the area, by the National Front and inverting it into a creative sign, FN instead of NF, who also used to have rallies at the top of the road in Hoxton Square. They were the old tattoo Dr Martins and uh, Blue Jeans Brigade, ones you'd see in Gilbert and George pictures at the time. There's obviously Gilbert and George did quite a few of them as models for their work. Joshua appears in one of their pictures. Like his mentors, he proclaimed art for all, and his vision was the transformation of Shoreditch. He wanted to bring art back onto a street level, a public level. He hit on this idea of having a street fate. He hired all these 1940s trestle tables and bunting. It really did look like a proper old-fashioned village fate. Two people who took it very seriously were Angus Fairhurst and Damien Hurst, who dressed up as clowns. They uh, were drinking and chain-smoking all day long, so they looked very malevolent. Unlike most of the other artists, Damien had already made himself a star. He put unexpected items in glass tanks or vitrines, as art people like to call them, flies, dead sharks and cows. He'd recreated an entire chemist shop in a New York gallery and shown at the Venice Biennale that year. Using an electric drill, an old record player and a squeezy bottle filled with paint, Damien and Angus made spin paintings for a pound. For an extra 50 pence, they'd drop their trousers Performance artist Lee Bowery had painted their penis and testicles as well as their faces. Maybe it was at that point people realised it was Damien. At the end, all the artists uh, picked Joshua up and carried him through the streets on their shoulders, cheering him like he was a local hero. I think it's probably one of the best days of his life. The next year, the fate moved to Hoxton Square. That was huge. He didn't quite recover from that one. And that bankrupted him. That was probably one of the worst days of his life. Everyone who transpired to be important in the London art world in the coming decades was at that fate. Nowadays, there's an annual art car boot sale that owes a debt to that day. He'd started off something that was much bigger than him and um, everyone could see this huge future for him, you know, mapped out in front of him. Joshua died aged 25 in 1996. He was found in his gallery. Nobody quite knows what happened. 
only that his death involved a lethal combination of alcohol and ether. When I went to Fate Worse Than Death and I saw all of these people that had been on the periphery and part of my social circle or not, and, and Damien Hurst and Gavin Turk, giving away their artwork for virtually nothing, that felt completely right. It was the culmination of lots of things coming together under one kind of temporary banner. It, it just felt really genuine. Within a few years, artists that Joshua had brought together would be part of Sensation, the exhibition that made their names. Now, not only the British tabloids and the passers-by of Rachel Whiteread's house were staring in a discombobulated or delighted manner at the YBAs and British culture. The entire world appeared to be faced our way. Brit art, Britpop and Cool Britannia had arrived. In Hoxton Square in 1993, a club called The Blue Note opened, putting on nights with the likes of Mo Wax's James Lavelle and Goldie's Metalheads. This opened the floodgates for a multitude of bars and restaurants and boutiques and art galleries. It even spawned a haircut, the Hoxton Finn, plus a famous British sitcom, Nathan Barley, by the Black Mirror creator Charlie Brooker, which lampooned the entire scene. I've lived in Shoreditch for nearly 30 years now. So I've kind of watched the whole face of Shoreditch change. I still live here, I still like it. If you could turn a switch tomorrow and go back to how it was, would you do that? Yeah, but I'd buy about 50 properties. (laughs) (laughs) As skyscrapers are hammered up, creating work pods for young things, and pop-up restaurants and galleries pop effervescently around us, it's worth remembering that once, streets were deserted. Just a handful of artists and two women selling homemade badges, infuriating many passers-by, but going on to change the world. For more Walks of Art podcasts and to find out about the accompanying book of the same name, visit the Tate website. <laughs>